Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Phil Craft Survival Podcast here with Kevin Owens again. What's up, Kev? Hey, what's up, Mike? I don't know why I'm in a rush, but it's probably because I drink Killcliffe. <laughs> so I'm drinking this new Joe Rogan Killcliffe drink. It's called Hemp Infused Clean Energy Drink. It is the uh, Flaming Joe limited edition version. Look, I'm, I'm a fan of Joe Rogan, but also a fan of Killcliffe um, and a fan of CBD. Um, if you're interested in uh, all natural energy drinks, with a company that cares about veteran advocacy, does a whole bunch of cool stuff, sponsors a, a lot of great people in the space, um, including uh, Andy Stumpf um, is all, is sponsoring uh, Joe Rogan as well. They should do a uh, man. They should do a Mike Glover. They should a Phil Craft version. Stay alert, stay alive version <laughs> of uh, Kill Cliff. A big shout out to Kill Cliff. Use Survival One Zero Survival One Zero at checkout and save ten percent on Kill Cliff. Dot com. Also, we're sponsored by Triarc Systems. TriarcSystems.com. That's T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. Look, custom guns are uh, a relatively new thing to the space of um, like modern firearms. Like custom guns used to be back in the day, like a 1911 with a beaver tail or, or a suite of uh, aftermarket products from Brownells. But what's cool about custom anything is they're readily available. When you look at custom guns and them being custom built, like Triarc Systems do, you're not running into inventory issues as you are with everybody else in the industry that's a gun space because everybody is buying a gun. So Triarc Systems has the Tri-11, for example, one of my favorite double-stacked 1911 style firearms that's one of the best handling, shooting guns I've ever shot, but also custom carbines, rifles, the list goes on. Philcraft, one word at checkout to save 5% on a build, which is a lot of money on a build. Philcraft on checkout at chartsystems.com. We're also sponsored by kchighlights.com. KC Highlights has been around forever, family owned, operated, very good company to work with. We've been working with them in uh, Overland and Mobility with Philcraft Survival. Uh, they're on the big rig truck that's been featured in magazines all over uh, the big bug out truck that's the the diesel for Philcraft. I want to say it's my truck, but it's not. It's the company's truck. But you'll see that truck as well as my personal Land Cruiser at King of the Hammers with Derek Miller and Mike Hernandez and my media team. Those are the guys who are driving the big old Sequoia. That is uh, Derek Miller's vehicle that's sponsored by Philcraft Survival at King of the Hammers. It'll be KC highlighted out. You guys could use Philcraft at kchighlights.com to save 10%. They even have handheld EDC lights that I have in my personal EDC, um, and they're actually reasonably priced. Um, save 10% on checkout with using Philcraft. Guys, today we talk about Ernest Shackleton's great expedition on the endurance, um, which is something that me and Kevin, for the future of Philcraft survival, are going to be educating you on. These stories of survival, SOS, stories of survival, we want to, one, educate you on history, but get you super interested in all the lessons learned that have taken place uh, in history and time that you could benefit from uh, that are truly timeless stories. Uh, this story um, is a story of survival in an extended, sustained format, <laughs> 22 months worth. Um, and we're going to kick it off with this story of epic survival in Antarctica. Um, here we go. That's how I roll, Kev. I'm on a podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, Ernest Shackleton, man. Oh, gosh. How to begin a very in-depth and... Um, wow. 
Yeah. I mean, like, what's the start point here? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, we keep saying Shackleton, Shackleton, Shackleton. He, and he was a good leader and he he uh, he pulled the whole thing together. But there was a bunch of guys on that that were just like oh, superstars, right? A handpicked team, really tough guys that went into the uh, the abyss uh, and... Uh, they knew, it. I was going to say, they didn't really know what they were getting into, but they, they kind of knew. Some of them had been there before. But in researching this and uh, digging into it a little more, like when I start reading about it and I start looking at it, and I remember hearing about it years ago, I was like, man, how come it takes so long? Like once you're there to, to kind of push inland and then you realize that you could take the whole United States and drop it in on the Antarctic mm. um, continent and it wouldn't even fill the whole thing up. So you're talking about vast distances in the most hostile terrain in the world, like like just brutal. So um, as we start digging down into, into the story, uh, so many stories of survival, so many stories of, of courage and uh so many stories of leadership. It's just a fascinating tale. I, I, one of the things that we've kicked off with the SOS format, which is the stories of survival, is there are many stories throughout history that have truly tested um, the resilience of man. And there's there's many instances where there are no record, um, whether it's video, uh, video, uh, photography, even the written form is kind of intermittent. That goes back to like Spartan days, right? Mm-hmm. But the Vikings, the know, Vikings. Yeah. Th- this story took place a hundred years ago. But uh, one thing you should know is that me and Kevin are going to get down deep in the weeds on these stories, extracting like the beneficial things that are going to help you in thinking about your own preparedness and your own survival, but also uh, line out many historical references for these stories throughout the year. We got the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. We got, what else we got? Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Franklin Expedition, yeah. which is a complete yeah. nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, even Robert Scott stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to do so seasonal. And if we can, in some cases, like the Lewis and Clark, we're actually going to take you to those places where these things took place. Retrace the steps. Absolutely. Yeah, start in St. Louis and then just retrace the steps westward. Um I'm talking about the overall mission and, and, and the Lewis and Clark one to me is, is fascinating because, again, handpicked team of really solid guys. And that's why it was successful. Um, the, the, we're jumping around a little bit here, but the Scott expedition was not that, you know, Shackleton picked his team very well. Scott did not. And it, it's, it's shocking to see how little they knew about the Antarctic and, and surviving in cold weather and their prep. I think they underestimated it because it was one of the first expeditions and um, they, they paid the price dearly on yeah, this Scott one. Yeah, as a, a, a historical reference or context, the the expeditions of the North Pole and the South Pole, um, the Arctic and the Antarctica, mm-hmm. which is not north, which is part of uh, how it's um, uh, lined out phonetically or... or in language, right? You have the Arctic, which is north, mm-hmm. the northern uh, hemisphere. And in the southern hemisphere, you have Antarctica. To accomplish um, any feat of getting close or planting a flag on the pole itself, or even a transcontinental uh, voyage as this expedition was, was a major feat for countries at the time. Mm. Uh, the Norwegians were leading the way in many many uh, shapes. Yeah, there was almost like an arms race between well, a yeah. bunch of these uh, 
kind of superpowers at the time. England, uh, Norway was not a superpower, but it was very, very good at, at polar exp- exploration at that time. Um, the uh, the French, the, the, the uh, all, all the big powers at the time were trying to, even the United States, yeah. even the, you know, and, and I think it's worth looking back and remembering that the whole world changed after World War, world War One, and then it completely changed again after World War Two. So when you when you look at these powers and the the, the colonial mindset, um, the world was a whole a completely different place a hundred years ago than, than it is now. And uh, some of these powers were like the the British were losing. There was still there, at that time there was undertones of revolution, and you know the Russian Revolution came later, and and uh, the, after World War One, and um, they were starting to lose a, a grip on their empire even before then, and this polar explore, exploration and being the first or trying to be the first to hit the South Pole, it was to reestablish. Britain's dominance in the world. That, that was a big part of it. And that's why it got financed. That at a massive cost at the time. But it was partly to, to flex um, the empire's muscle and, and show how strong. Because at that time, um, they, they used to say the world has never sets on the, on the British Empire. And, you know, Britannia rules their waves. And it, it was part partly to reinforce that, that concept. Yeah, the... the I mean, a good example, I remember this from being a tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns because we learned a lot about the history of Arlington Cemetery and significant figures throughout history have been buried there. And I remember Robert Perry. Um, in fact, I remember the memorial of Robert Perry that was was uh, in Arlington Cemetery. I, I believe it was Robert Perry. Uh, and I apologize if that's not the case. Uh, another one was Bird. I believe it was Robert Bird, who was the first naval officer to fly a transcontinental across the uh, uh, the North Pole, but Robert Perry reached the North Pole on April 6, nineteen oh nine. So this is even pre um, uh, Amundsen, uh, Scott, or no, about the same time as Scott's expedition. The first one, the first yeah. one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was oh six to oh nine, I believe. I think something like that. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then um, what a great time to be alive, man! Dude, to, have, to have parts of the world that nobody's ever been to. And you're being the first one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, even on the Scott expedition, the failed expedition, which you know, spoiler alert, he dies, and so does team. Yeah. Um, but they they discovered. Um, fossilized trees that were in their possession when they discovered the body after they came back, I, I think a year, year or so later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had never been determined as a scientific discovery that that was the case. Mm-hmm. And that's super impactful. Like nobody had ever discovered it. Scientists weren't playing a significant role because it's about exploration. Yeah. But science and, uh, you know, this understanding of the world around us that we didn't know, especially in the, these places, were being discovered. Mm-hmm. And you were the first one. I mean, Robert Perry, uh, accompanied by Matt Henson and four Inuits, um, uh, all their names are, are, are referenced. I, I won't hack their names, were the first to conquest the North Pole. And that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, the Norwegians, and I'm, I'm talking to you like you're an expert at this because you're from that region of the world, right? <laughs> Norwegian. <laughs> yeah, have, have, I mean, besides Viking history, have the Norwegians always been 
seafarers and experts of mm-hmm. this kind of thing? They have. Yeah, they have. Um, especially most of the Scandinavian countries, but especially Norway. Uh, the North Sea is, is, a, is a brutal place. Um, but Norway is one of the richest countries in the world. People don't even know that because of North Sea oil. Um, but they've always been hard seafaring people. And the, the thing about... So, so it was a Norwegian who who got to the South Pole first, the first ones ever there. But they went specifically to go to the South Pole, whereas Scott went to do all this scientific exploration and, and document, you know, um, all the conditions and, and the animals and all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, Ahmed's son, I think his name was, he just went to get to the pole and and, and was an expert skier, expert dog handler, just just had the background and, and the people to, to do it. Whereas Scott just pulled a bunch of guys together who kind of sort of knew some of them what they were doing. And uh, like I said, they paid, paid dearly because a bunch of them died. What, what is, how come there's not a lot of reference for Amundsen's discovery of the South Pole? And even in the, con, like when you look up the Fram and the context of their, uh, all the things that they did, it almost seems overshadowed by the tragedies that took place around the I same know, time, right? right? Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information out there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because... Um he was Norwegian. If he was American, maybe there'd be a whole lot more about him. Or even if he's English, maybe there'd be a whole lot more about him. But it is kind of overshadowed by by other events. And, and you know, Robert Rob, Robert Scott, um, he made a lot of mistakes. And uh, you know, people died. And there 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 was other people in those groups that were just like way. I, I don't know if I would say smarter, but but there were there were. Uh, super efficient at that like Tom Crean is one who was an Irish man who was on the first Scott expedition he was on the second one I think yeah he was and he was with uh, Shackleton on on that big uh, one we started talking about so uh, the guy was an expert but you never heard of him because he was a second class citizen because at Uh. the time a hundred years ago which there's still parts of this but he because he was Irish he wasn't English and because he was uh enlisted it was all about the officers there was a there was a class system in place where um they took along enlisted to do the manual labor but the officers and the scientists got all the credit and uh, it, it was crazy like they're on a ship out there for years and and all the enlisted men are crammed into quarters where they have like hammocks hanging where where like the, the next guy above you is like you know six inches from your face and in some cases they hot bunked so when one guy was on guard somebody else used his bed right but all the officers had their own rooms mm-hmm. and um, I think I was telling you uh, at one point I think four or six of them got stranded in a, in a, in a cave for like I don't know, a week or something, and the cave was full of snow, and they went in there and sheltered, and there was a couple of officers and a couple of enlisted, and they drew a line in the snow, and the officers stayed on one side, and the enlisted, and, and nobody seemed to mind, because that's just how things were done back then, and they were still done like that when I was in the Irish Army back back in the day, right? There was still an officer's mess hall and an enlisted mess hall, and they never, ever um, ate in the same place. They never, you know, uh, it was completely segregated, and that came from the British Army. Which, which blows me away for a country that was ruled by the British Empire for a thousand years and hated the British Empire. When when they finally got rid of Britain, you think they would have thrown out all those things that they hated about the British Empire. But the, Amer- the, the Irish government just took it all. The Irish military took all the, 
the um, the British uh, customs and courtesies and just had adopted them as their own. So it you'll see that anywhere the British wear. India is very, very much like that. Mm. Um, anywhere that it colonized. Anywhere that was colonized. Even it, the American military, right? I'm assuming our military is based on the traditions. Yeah. I mean, revolutionary, civil. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of traditions that we fought like you know, the gentlemen that were... Yeah, and, and I think British. it's worse than some other services. It's not as bad in the, in the Army, but in the Air Force, it's bad. Like, I remember going to Afghanistan in, like, 04, I think, and, and we flew in, we stopped in Spain, I believe, and we had to go to an Air Force base and stay overnight. And my company commander, who was an 04 major... He said uh, that we were all checking in and the enlisted had to go to one place and the officers went to another, right? And, um, and excuse me, I remember- In my, quarters. In quarters, yeah. yeah. And then my company commander said, no, we're all going to stay in the same place. And they're like, you can't. And he was like, well, I'll stay with the enlisted. And they're like, you can't. And he was like, I'm staying there. And they, they, did it, they, they reluctantly let him, but he stayed with all the enlisted because he didn't want to get segregated from his guys because he was squared away. But that, that mentality is still in, it's very much in the Air Force. I assume it's in the Navy. It's not so bad in, in the Army and until you get to the very higher ranks. Yeah, well, part of it too is like the Air Force, just like the Navy, when you commanded a ship, you had control of it. Yeah. Like you fly a plane and you command a ship but the and, or you you actually like navigate it like you drive it or whatever however, whatever you call that whatever the naval term is <laughs> sail, <that>. it? <laughs> sail it sail <laughs> it um that that's always surprising to me and in in this time frame like robert bird is a good example robert bird was a commander uh he was an officer and he was flying he was a navy officer but he was flying a transcontinental flight like an experimental thing. Mm. And then he got promoted to Admiral after he was successful. And I was thinking like, and, and looking at Robert Perry, for example, Robert Perry, who is buried in Arlington Cemetery, just confirmed it to be sure. Cause I remember his, uh, the globe was his memorial with the North pole. It's really cool. Mm. Uh, if you haven't been there to Arlington Cemetery, you should go, but make sure you visit. Uh, I believe, I don't want to, I don't want to hack it. I, I used to remember the section he was buried in. You don't but, remember? You got to give your badge back now. I know, right? <laughs> I, I probably do. Um, super, real, super cool, like kind of guy, but there's pictures of him um, in uniform and he's got like this gnarly, like this gnarly mustache yeah. and he just looks like a boss. But there's also during the expedition, a really cool uh, picture of him wearing traditional, traditional Inuit uh, Eskimo uh, clothes because the way that he survived um, was he followed the Eskimos traditions mm-hmm. and a, a lot. So this is they insane. might know a thing or two about staying alive. Exa- right? yeah. Exactly. So I, I highly respect the fact that he took on indigenous methodology because they lived in that part of the world forever. Mm-hmm. So, which is interesting because they, uh, the Inuits, for example, led um, the, the, the eventual finding of Franklin's expedition and what happened to them, the Inuit le- led them to them because they were experts. It's almost like the, what do they call the Sherpa? You yeah, know, it's like yeah. all these people mm-hmm. are experts except the Sherpa have been running out Mount Everest like recreationally. Yeah. And then you talk to these, uh, the Inuits and it's the same thing. A lot of the mistakes that were made were from officers because most of these guys were officers mm-hmm. where they had, I don't know. It's a combination of ego. Yeah. But, but they're guys who like Robert Scott brought 
Oh, I think Franklin uh, was not Franklin, but um, the Greeley expedition was known for this as well, where Robert Greeley was a all these guys are names are Robert, uh, where Greeley, who's a Civil War officer, American, brought uh, horses mm-hmm. or I think it was mules. He brought mules and they all fell in the water. And died. <laughs> yeah, Scott did that, too. He took ponies. Yeah, yeah he took yeah, ponies and yeah. they all died. They had yeah. like they had to eat them or they died mm-hmm. and they didn't understand these ways. I think it's a part, it's partly ego and it's partly thinking, you know, it's, oh, I'm, I'm, I know better than you. You know what I mean? Where, where you probably don't, right? And Amundsen wasn't like that, right? Cause no, yeah. I don't think so. Um, the, uh, and I, I think Amundsen just assembled a better team and had a very clear goal and he was just trying to get there and get back in one piece. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in that whole, you know, the, 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 the way that whole class system from back then, because it's still hanging on there like a bad cold, you know, and a lot of that changed after, you know, World War One. You had the Russian Revolution, you had the 1916 Rising, like I was talking about before in Ireland, where there was a lot of pushback against that elitism, you know, class system. Um, but but it was very evident in, in uh, some of these books you read about these, you know, ex- explorations. Yeah, it's funny looking at pictures of Amundsen and he's, uh, his daughters were Inuit. They were, he was, I think he was married to a, 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 oh, yeah. an Inuit mm-hmm. a woman, but he fought, I remember reading about him following the traditions and wearing the, the garb and the, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of success, right? When you, when you look at, um, special operations and their successes in Afghanistan or, or in war period, mm-hmm. the best successes are aligned with the cultural integration yeah. with the population, mm-hmm. no matter what. It's like, that's, it's, it's yeah. funny. You remember the, uh, survival acronym for the army, mm-hmm. the A in that is act like natives. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. I never really thought about that. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to kick off the timeline. So let's talk about, I mean, Ernest Shackleton was a polar explorer, who had already learned some hard lessons. His first- Yeah, he'd been on the Scott expedition, the yeah. first one, which failed, yep. and uh, had to go back early because he was he he, uh, he was sick, mm-hmm. and he was really, really mad. He, uh, I don't think he th- thought much of Scott's leadership style, and I think he learned a lot of lessons from what not to do. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the evidence points at them butting heads, yeah. uh, and it was a battle of ego. A lot yeah, of it you see, was Scott. The, Scott was a, a naval officer, and Shackleton wasn't. Shackleton was merchant navy. Yeah. And he was one of the only merchant navy people on that expedition that for, and, and I think Scott didn't like that. Since he was 16, right? So yeah, very young. Yeah, age. very young, which was very normal back then. Yeah. Yeah. And he had, um, a, you know, up to the point in which he did his first expedition, he had over a decade of experience. So he wasn't a inexperienced person. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had lots of experiences and was known for being outspoken about specific things, right? Yeah. He had experience in sailing. Not a lot in that terrain, which nobody did. Yeah, you know, especially on that first expedition where they just got their ass kicked and and just didn't know what to expect. And um, yeah, yeah. So he learned so much from that first expedition with Scott on, on uh, the dangers and and you know techniques and stuff like that to, to navigate that that harsh terrain and 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 leadership too. It was very evident that he learned a lot of leadership lessons on that first one. So he he sets out on his own venture to do the same Mm -hmm. and actually sets out and is more successful by getting closer to this to South Pole than actual Scott did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the major mistakes that Scott made on his failed expedition where it was actually a success 
but he was five weeks short of Amundsen's goal and not, not even knowing it or realizing it was that he didn't plan for exfil. And one of the things noted in uh, Shackleton's second expedition was that there was a criteria, a point in which there was no return where they realized they're running out of food. And if they would have pushed on uh, historians believe uh, that would have been, that was one of the most single most important uh, um, decisions made in history because if they went and continued, they would have made the South Pole, beating Amundsen. But they would have died. They would have died. Yeah. So that that's brought up in his second, you know, the, the big uh, endurance expedition because it was one of the reasons, what was his 2SC's name? Uh, Frank Wild. Frank Wild. It was yeah. one of the reasons Frank Wild really liked him was because he, he put the man first, right? He could have kept pushing and pushing and pushing and made the South Pole first and been famous, but they would have all died. So at a certain point, he said, okay, we're done and we're heading back. That had and been tough. It man. had been tough to turn around, yeah. And, um, but, I, you know, a very, very mature decision, you know, um, that, that not a lot of big egos would have made. Yeah, it, mm. it was the the second expedition, which is known as the, um, I mean, they, they often they're depicted as the name of the ship, mm-hmm. which they did. This was on the Nimrod from 1907 to 1909. What's interesting is, uh, if you guys remember it on my, on my social media, I have been talking about this probably about six months, maybe even a year ago, it's, it's been so long. But I was talking about the Nimrod and Ernest Shackleton's expedition because they had this scotch whiskey um, that was called McKellar's. And when they went to rediscover the Nimrod, they found a, a supply of the actual whiskey that was still intact. And what's interesting is that company, McKellar's, um, and I hope I'm saying that right, um, they, they actually took that and they distilled it and and rediscovered all of the things that were lost on that expedition and made that whiskey, remade that whiskey. Mm. And I put it all all call. It's called McCain, McKinley's. McKinley's. I'm mm. probably misspelling that. It's M-A-C-K-I-N-A-I-N-L-A-Y-S. McKinley's? McKinley's, mm-hmm. yep. And um, they redid it. Mm. And so I said, hey, if you guys know where this is, and my buddy Alejo was just here. He found me a bottle, mm. and I have it at the house. <laughs> it's a rare because it's a very rare bottle that was uh, uh, distilled. It's not actually from the ship, of course. Yeah. That's the most valuable whiskey on the planet because mm. with age it becomes better. Isn't it crazy the stuff they brought? Insane. Like, you couldn't drink anything worse than a cold climate than whiskey. Know. You know, I was reading the one the Scott brought eight hundred gallons of rum. Isn't that crazy? Hey, but it was a cultural thing. Yeah. Nobody would have went if you didn't bring any, yeah, right? tobacco. It, it was the same as uh, Lewis and Clark. Took yeah. shit tons of alcohol with them. because, And every night, real professional crew, but every night they yeah. expected to get, to get their ration of whiskey or whatever it was. Yeah. Drink. That's like me I, every night at home. It's a cultural thing, man. It, it I was, like it, though. Yeah, it's so yeah. cool. <laughs> I, it, the, 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 all the... Well, anyways, we'll get to that. Mm. So... He's on his third expedition and he decides in 1914, it was a decision made earlier based, I believe, on Scott's failed. Uh, I mean, he, he made the attempt, but they died on the way back. Mm-hmm. They already knew the South Pole and, the, and planting the flag wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. So the only options they had in expeditions for first timers, which are many, um, but they decided to, do, to go from west to east. Some, I mean, it's north to south, but it's, it actually goes across the continent from west to east. 
starting in the Weldon Weldon Sea or Weddle Weddle Sea, Weddle sea yeah. to the uh, Ross Sea, which is an insane distance. Like you look at it on a map and you don't really realize like thousands it, yeah, of miles, right? Insane. Just just before we get into that, like I thought it was interesting too that Scott was going for the South Pole amid massive publicity, newspaper articles, massive fundraising, everything. Ed- Edmondson, that his name, the Norwegian, kept it completely quiet. The crew didn't even know where they were going. They thought they were going to the North Pole until he set sail because he didn't want uh, Scott beating him there. So he kept it complete upset, wow. dude. He kept it completely yeah, quiet. Scott didn't know. They didn't know until yeah. he was on his way. Oof. He got a telegram when he was like at his last port, I think. And that said that he was he was chasing for the pole. Oof. He kept it completely quiet, which is pretty cool. And what's sad is when Scott got there, he had an, yeah. an idea. Yeah. And they were defeated because they had already lost a lot, right? Yeah. They, were, they were just, I mean, they were on, um, the guys were sick. It, yeah. it, after they left on their exfil, the first guy wound up dying and they thought he was going to, he was the guy holding them back. But then a storm came. Long story short, mm-hmm. when they hit the pole, the Norwegian flag was already planted. I know. I'd have hit it. Oh. <laughs> Rolling it up, took the picture. Like never saw it. Never saw anything. <laughs> that Amison guy's a liar. Um, he had already been home. Yeah. I mean, or he was in inbound mm-hmm. home and was already it was already being reported, but nobody had an idea. Yeah. So you, you have to remember the the nineteen in nineteen fourteen, um, obviously the start of the Great World War One. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, one of the most um, devastating wars of. Yeah. of of history. Yeah, it was it was old tactics against new weapons. Mm. And that never goes well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like old tactics of charging into no man's land into machine guns, which yeah, it was a meat grinder. People like just by the hundreds of thousands were, were slaughtered. Yeah. yeah, this is why while people were trying to pioneer exploration um, and be the first, right? Yeah. So this was almost just as impactful. Let's first talk about um, the ship, mm-hmm. the endurance. Um, interesting that, you know, at, at this time, your ship was your clout. I mean, you weren't anything without the proper ship. And what's interesting is Amundsen's ship, the Fram, was known historically in this time period as being one of the most strongest, most impactful, uh, most epic boats of all time, mm-hmm. right? It's, um, so when, when, when Shackleton looked at this, He's comparably looking at funding and and trying to assemble not only the team at the same time, but looking at the boat and how they're going to make it proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting is this boat, which was known as um, uh, uh, the what's the it's the North Star. Um, oh, man, my brain just took a which which boat? The, the original name of the Endurance. Oh, Ooh, Ent- was it no, no. Enterprise or something like no, that? Right, it was something weird. Or, 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 no, not a Ro- I was going to say no. Aurora. That was the second boat. Uh, I'll get that. I'll uh, get yeah, that. it's on the tip of my. But thumb. it was in Norway. Yeah. He he mm-hmm. went to Norway. A famous. Uh, yeah, he renamed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. famous. Uh, a Norwegian builder who was famously known in Norway for building the best best of boats was building this boat to use this boat for polar exploration and hunts for wealthy people, for rich people. And so all the amenities of this boat, including 
the galley, is that what we call it? Mm-hmm. The, the galley. Home, yeah. Um, all, all of the amenities were all primed for, for this exclusive group of people. Mm-hmm. And there was there, like the what's hole the, was super the, thick. What's the front of the bullet called? Oh, dude. Is it the, um, the bow. Is it? The stern is the back. Oh, okay. Dude, dude, I learned that in the Irish Army years ago when I went to this naval course yeah. in special operations. And I'm like, fuck, I'll never remember that. And one of the guys was like, remember stern being the back? Because your mother's stern and she will beat that ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I never forgot it. I'll never forget that now. The stern. The stern. Well, so what's the front call? The bow. Okay, so the bow was um, made of that, uh, gr- was it Greenheart? Oh, I can't remember. Come on, Dude. man. Dude. No. Uh, Wood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we suck at historical. Dude. Like, that's a lot of facts. It's like, it's it's yeah. it's the most, uh, it's the hardest wood. It's like iron. Yeah, it's it, like three feet thick, the, the, the bow, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the sides were 30 inches and there was points uh, of, of the actual, the main um, bow that were 70 inches thick. Yeah, because you're ramming through the ice with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the strategy. And you talk, well, we talked about the fram and the uh, bowl shape versus mm-hmm. the narrow shape of the endurance. And the what were some of the limitations? F- yeah, there was the flat, the flat bottom. So when the ice started crushing the ship, the, the fram had a, like a, a V-shaped hull type thing, like a Connor IED vehicle. Yeah. And it, it directed the ice away from it, or it, it, it didn't give the ice a good grip on it. Whereas uh, Shackleton's boat, the Endurance, it, it, it crushed the ship eventually uh, because of the ship at a hull. So th- that mistake right there cost them dearly. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's super interesting because um, that was one of the successes of the Fram because when you're... I mean, people who don't, I mean, you have to understand what Antarctica is. It is 70% of the world's fresh water yeah. in a ice cube that's floating in the ocean, mm-hmm. right? So you have fresh water that's frozen. There's points of Antarctica that's on a shelf of ice that are 200 feet tall in the sheer cliff that drops off on the edges of this. Mm-hmm. And at the time, all these... Um, pieces of ice, which is called ice pack. That's what they called it back in the day. I think it's still called that is floating around locking in. And, you know, up until this point, now everybody who tried to explore it was hitting it in the summertime, which is the opposite of the Northern hemisphere, which we're in, in the Southern hemisphere, trying to optimally get into the continent. um, While there's not a lot of pack ice to make landfall Mm -hmm. or what you consider landfall. And so all, all the considerations for this boat are packing weight, packing personnel, um, packing the, so they could break through ice. And so the cool thing about uh, this boat was he selected it, he found it, he shopped it himself in Norway, mm-hmm. and then had it shipped to London. And he, he pay, at the time, he paid uh, around 10,000 pounds, which is the equivalent estimates are 700,000 to one point something million dollars a pretty penny for a good boat. Yeah, it was an expensive endeavor. And and part of the funding he raised was through photographs uh, and film of the ice and, and you know, the, uh, the, the penguins and seals and killer whales and all that photography and, and video and film. That was partly how he, he raised the funds. It was very expensive expedition at the time. And, and you know, Churchill wasn't all about it because Churchill was the, 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 leader of the admiralty or whatever. And, and he said, look, the, the pole's already been discovered. Why are we going back? And um, the day they left, World War One broke out. And uh, they actually said, 
you know, they put it up to the uh, the Admiralty and said, hey, we will go to the war if that's what you want. And they said, hey, go, go on, go do your thing. So um, it almost didn't happen. Yeah, it's when I think about that, I think about the quality of not only leadership, but the men that they had. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a little bit of the, the, the recruitment process of how he selected his guys because it was a lot different and unconventional compared to a lot of the Navy commanders who had recruited their guys before then. But I love the fact that um, when he recruited his guys, well, one, he had his veteran group. Right. He had guys like Frank Wilde, mm-hmm. like Tom Crane. Mm-hmm. Um, these are guys that had experience on the water, but he also knew um, personally of their experience. And these guys filled the main roles of like uh, second in command, third in command. They call them uh, what do they call them? Second command or what is the term? There's a there's a naval term for being second, third, or oh, oh, second officer, first, yeah, third yeah, officer. Yeah. They had lines of command in in the in the chain of custody, but I, I think it's I think it's interesting that when he had guys like Frank Wilde who were with him on the expedition prior on the Nimrod, um, he he knew and understood them as a reference his process in leading and even recruiting the right people is used majorly in business, Mm. which I find interesting because Mm -hmm. when you look at the details, he was kind of haphazardly choosing guys using a lot of intuition. He was, and I I think he, he, uh, he chose guys close to him because he knew him. And and you, you, you read about Frank Wilde or or Tom Crean and the, the word you, that keeps coming up again and again is reliable. There were reliable guys that you could, you could, they would never buckle that on good them. personality. That, they, <laughs> they no. had a real good personality. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, they, you know, you, you probably in any document where he was recruiting people, you probably wouldn't find the phrase. He's a good dude, but but <laughs> we've known plenty of those oh, guys. Oh yeah, yeah. So so reliability was a huge one, and and guys who wouldn't buckle under pressure because. Um, Guys who'd been there before and 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 saw the 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 harshest of conditions and the timelines blow me away. They're like, "Hey, you're going out here, and you might be back in two years or it might be three years. We don't really know." And um, so he he handpicked the guys closest to him and did a really good job. And then he, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, it seemed like he was more haphazard with with the other people on the ship, right? They were like, oh yeah, he he just picked this guy because of this or this guy because of this, but um, yeah, he he was obviously a good judge of character. Yeah, there's instances. I mean, I think Harvard Business, the fact that they talk about, I mean, there's a podcast, there's a whole bunch of information on it. They even teach it as a class. Mm. But um, which is surprising to me is there's evidence that shows that he advertised an all call because he in his book south that he wrote uh, in 1921 or 1919 um that when he after he wrote that he put out that hey we we have 5000 applicants apply now there's 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 an illustration of like um this 5000 applicants that was that was applied but what there isn't is evidence that he had a specific advertisement. And that specifically for me, bums me out. I just mean like the whole advertisement piece, there's no proof of that. No, 
But I mean, how else would you recruit? Yeah. You put an ad in the paper? Well, 5,000 applicants showing. I mean, I mean, they said the yeah. same thing about Scott, right? The exact same 5,000 applicants, you know? Oh, yeah. For his ad. Is it true? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? I, yeah, who knows? Well, that's a lot of people back then. It is. But, you know, life probably sucked pretty bad. Sort of like, hey, uh, anything I'll epic. Go. Yeah. yeah. Like when, you know, I'm reading that Tom Crane book, he, he joined the uh, Royal Navy at 15. Because he just he was part of ten kids on a farm in uh, in um, Ireland, and you know two of the two of the older sons get the farm. The others, hey, go get a job. One one became a police officer, and you know some I, I think left the country, and he was like, okay, I got nothing else. I'm going to join the navy at fifteen. So wow. life was hard, life was tough, and you had to figure it out, right? So um, so he gets these five thousand applicants who apply they he starts filtering through them it's recorded that he never spent more than five minutes in an interview well you couldn't yeah i mean how could you right yeah. there's no background checks there's no freaking that's true all you got to do is walk in and go eh, don't like the look of you gone yeah right? He's, he actually did that with uh i can't remember who maybe it was wars one of the guys yeah um he walks in You're like, you've, you've only got one leg get out yeah he <laughs> likes his he goes uh, you know basically i like your face so you're good uh, some of the questions uh, historically are referenced that uh, we're very interesting, even in the Harvard anal analytical review of uh, how this applies today, where he asked them things like, do you, do you sing yeah. or can you sing? Yeah. And people, you know, some of the applicants were taken back by that, but he was getting to, um, you know, how are your teeth? Do you sing? Mm -hmm. Do you have varicose veins? Because what he's doing is he's identifying the healthy people, yep. but also the ones that mo are most adaptable in culture. Yep. Because if they don't and, fit in, yeah, it's it's a problem. And to boost morale, right? Yeah, to, yeah, and and that's, um, it, 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 on a ship for for a couple of years straight. If you have a guy who just doesn't get along with people, or he, he's uh, he's one of these whiners and and complainers, and always finds problem with things, that that that's like a virus in there. But they had entertainment nights where they put on shows, and you know what I mean. Having people that, that can sing and play instruments and all that. Was, there was no TV, right? So it was part of the morale. And I, I see why, having dug into it deeper now, I see why he asked those questions. Well, he's, he he was interested in people who uh, adapted better together as a team because he understood in his prior experiences the importance of cohesion yeah. um, and, and, and teamwork and mm -hmm. working together. And even more so than the technical skill sets of people that were fitting specific jobs, mm. which is super. I mean, he had a meteorologist, he had two physicians that were surgeons. He had a whole bunch of experts, but he was more uh, into them fitting and blending in than their actual technical expertise because he believed their technical expertise could be taught. Could be taught. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point, right? That's um, that's why we do peers. That's why you do peer reviews yeah. in SF, right? Um, huh. Yeah, peer reviews are like at the end of every course, you'll get a list of people and you'd be, you can either rate them one to 10 or whatever's in your class or one to 15, or you can say, these are the top three guys in the class and here's why. And these are the bottom three guys in the class and here's why. And, um, well, I've <laughs> seen that backfire too, right? You see yeah. like when, when you do a peer review and you're, you're peer rating and in your group of a dozen, the worst of the best, right? These guys aren't here because mm -hmm. they're, they're mediocre. They've been through selection and I'm thinking about small unit tactics. Yeah. I mean, you were my yeah. small unit tactics, one of my instructors. But when you think about that peer group setting, even in Robin Sage or whatever you had, 
it's like, I remember in Robin Sage being one of the highest performers, but like I appeared second, like mm-hmm. below. And not as a, the best performer, I was just the second. Yeah. And, and, and uh, my instructor's like, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. But I'm like, I'm not the best. Like, what yeah. do I need to do yeah. to get the best? He goes, well, you can't beat that dude because he's just epic. He's, you know, he's one of those guys. And I'm thinking about the worst guy. Yeah. And I'm like, but he's not really that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, <laughs> when I got my, my, Eval and Robin Sage, my instructor was, I, I ran the, the crew in Robin Sage pretty much. I was one of the most senior guys there, but my, my instructor said, one guy said you were overbearing and another guy said you were too quiet. And he's like, how does that work? I was like, I don't know. He <laughs> can't win. Really? <laughs> yeah. Of course, man. Obviously I'm overbearing, so yeah. I don't know where that guy is. Whatever the, that guy, whoever that guy was, he just made, he's, he's the bottom of the peer list. But I, I like that idea. And I mean, I think it's a great concept, man. Yeah. You think about guys you're on a team with, like guys are rock stars, a rock star, right? And and technical skills can be thought, they can be taught, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, resilience and and uh, you know, being able to to uh, function in 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 gunfights and in, in in disastrous stuff and and come out that that you can't teach that. Yeah. Like, I remember when I was teaching at SUT, I remember seeing guys who were, I remember this one E6 from the 82nd Airborne with a Ranger tab quit on the obstacle course, like halfway through it, just quit. Like, you can tolerate anything in special operations what? except a quitter. The Nasty Nick you, is the you, easiest obstacle course <laughs> in any Well, you're, you're like six and a half feet tall, so you can reach up and grab things. <laughs> I can't. But, um, the, I mean, you can tolerate anything but a quitter. And, and the same thing in that expedition. You could not tolerate a quitter, right? Because imagine a, qu- a guy who quits there. Now the workload has raised for everybody else because this guy's just a dirtbag. Um the, it, 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 uh, I, I don't want to keep jumping about back and forth, but it happened in, in uh, the Lewis and Clark thing. They, they, they hand-selected again, had a great team, but one guy got drunk on duty and fell asleep and like a hundred lashes and busted, kicked him out of the core of discovery, but made him still go and stay with the group. Wow. Uh, and, uh, but you're a shitbag. Yeah. You know, I remember being in selection in Ireland and walking up the top of this mountain in a blizzard and, and, and like the, the instructors were dicks. Like they had us looking through the sights on the rifles, like iron sights, right? On HK-33s, looking through them as we patrolled up this mountain after like weeks in the field oh. and miserable and cold. Holding and the gun and up hungry, even Holding the gun hard. up, right? And we got up the top of this mountain and some guy was like, that's it, I quit. And the instructor's like, you think we're going to bring a fucking limo up here to pick you up? Get your ass off that. <laughs> He's but, like, maybe I don't want to quit. But, but character can't be, can't be taught, right? Mm. Skills can be taught. Character can't be taught. And that was the, the thought process with him, I think. I'm assuming he uses, when, when you say the word like intuition, which we've often used, right? Because we know we can identify yeah. good dudes from yeah. bad dudes. And, yeah. and it's not foolproof because we have evidence of that. <laughs> but when you, when, you, when you take a guy like him and he kind of understands, maybe through a line of questioning or maybe just in the first glance, what he's looking for, that's key, right? He, yeah. he, he knows the guy he wants to be. And it's like the the guy that you want to be in the foxhole with yeah. or a long range patrol with. That's the guy that you want to be. And, with. and you know, experience being the best teacher, having been on on an expedition before, mm. um, and spent years there. Like when by the time he got 
the, the expedition with with the discovery he knew what he was looking for right yeah, it was yeah. like you know i've been in afghanistan five times i know what i'm looking for when i get there right um I, I don't think he would, had he led an expedition for the first time, he would not have had that experience and that, you know, he wouldn't have known what he was looking for yeah. because he had no experience, right? Yeah, I think uh, when he, he picked the New Zealander, uh, Frank Worsley, for the, uh, to be the head navigator. Mm-hmm. And and what's interesting is when he assembles this team of guys, and including uh, dogs, which played a, a super uh, impactful role and especially in morale for the for the guys um he he gets everything lined out gets them on a ship and they set sail and part of the thing that i find interesting is the fact that he put worsley in charge for a period of time while him and frank wilde went on one part of the expedition um they traveled a commercial freight liner that got them there on time to link up with the guys, but they had to be on the water for months. Mm -hmm. And they show up in Buenos Aires and uh, you got several of the guys who are acting out and and just bad actors because Worsley wasn't known for being a disciplinary. Mm. So he's basically getting stepped on because he's like one of the peers, one of the guys. And these guys have a discipline problem. Well, Frank uh, Wild and uh, Shackleton, which who are both known for being disciplinaries, like Frank Wilde had a, an air about him where, where people liked him. He was a nice, calm guy. Mm-hmm. But they said when he was in charge, when in charge, be in charge. Yeah, that's the key to leadership, right? Is striking that balance. Yes, because you don't want to be a dick all the time, or people lose respect for you. But the, you have people have to know that you're in charge, right? So yeah. that, that, that it's striking that balance, especially when you're in charge of a bunch of A-type personalities yeah, yeah. that are all leaders in their own right. Strong-minded you know? men. Have you ever read anything about cross training? I'm just I'm just wondering, like. Obviously, Worsley could navigate his ass off, you know? And obviously, um, Shackleton could navigate too, been on the sea his whole life. But I, I, I wonder how many of them could actually navigate if something happened to the top one, two, three guys. Mm. Could any of the enlisted navigate, you know? It's a really interesting um, question because I, yeah. I, I know there is cases, uh, even Black Burl, who was in, you know, just getting a little bit ahead, but, you know, spoiler alert, we're just telling you, um, some of the things in, out of order. Well, this guy was an 18-year-old kid who was a stowaway. Mm-hmm. He had several of the members of the expedition hide him away, yep. convinced them that yeah. he had a way. Yeah. And there's a case, uh, parastoring it, where he grabs him and says, hey, Shackleton grabs a black and says, basically, um, if anything, if shit hits the fan yeah. and we got to eat somebody, you're yeah. going to be the first to eat. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of smiles. But he was known to be cross-trained across several different things mm. because they were looking for a, a position for him. And so that was taking place on the ship. But I, especially when you think about navigation, mm. uh, there are cases uh, where they talk about them only having um, one sextant and one compass and one barometer. Like they were down, whittled down to... Um, their primaries. They yeah. didn't have any contingencies mm. and redundancy. And I'm thinking, oh crap, like did they destroy their backups or did they not have backups? That's crazy, yeah, yeah. Because they're like in such a dangerous environment. Like I wonder if they even split up the leadership like, uh, you know, hey, we're going out into the interior. You stay back here because we don't want all the guys who can navigate on the same 
you know, six man team that goes forward in case we all die. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, we got to be able to get home. Well, right? I know he did leave. What did we call them in patrol bases when we left yeah, the, the patrol base on a leader's recon? The two IC stayed back. Yeah. Right. But what yeah. do we call that? It's like a five W. Oh yeah. Uh, Gotwa. Got one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is Going, that? others I'm taking with me. Yeah. Time I'll return. What to do if I don't return. Actions on contact. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. the contingency crosstalks. Yeah. Yeah. He, and there's cases of that. So he, he gets to Buenos Aires and he winds up firing dudes. He winds up getting rid of guys. They self-select uh, in some cases. And, and then some of the guys have to go back. Like there's a case of the uh, original dog handler who's a trainer who has to go back. And they're going with now no dog trainers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one avenue that they actually cross train. But when they depart uh, of note, before they depart, we had mentioned that the start of Britain declaring war on Germany on the date, which I believe was uh, August 8th, is the day that they decided to leave, but they had already given permission after going back and saying, hey, we see that the war is going to kick off. There was uh, a lot of back and forth. And then Ernest Shackleton wrote a letter. And in the letter, which is probably sent via telegram, he stated that um, he's volunteering and he got the buy-in from his crew. They all all voluntarily said, we're going to do it. We're all going to volunteer for war. And so they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what happened. They didn't go to war. In fact, they were told by the government at the time, uh, which I, I believe was, uh, uh, well, they, got, they received a telegram from Churchill thanking them for the volunteering, but they were needed in a broader mm-hmm. sense to do the expedition. It's funny how the Antarctic, as, as rough as it was, was a whole lot safer than the Somme. I know, man. I know. <laughs> yeah. So then, then they get a word, right? What was the word? Uh, proceed. Proceed mm-hmm. from the government via telegram. Mm-hmm. And they, that they did. August 8th, they departed. And then uh, fast forwarding a little bit, on October 26, 1914, the endurance departs Buenos Aires, um, headed for uh, Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things uh, of, of, of note that's important to reference in history is them showing up um, only a week later at the Welling Station in South Georgia Island. Um, South Georgia was their last point. It was their last point of departure that was used as a base of operations for whaling as an industry, which is one of the biggest industries known to man during this time. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, we had the mining, we have the industrial revolution. Whaling was massive. Yeah. Because we were feeling. It's funny, I was in in Somalia with a, a guy who worked for UN Security who grew up in Norway, in a Norwegian village. And he said... The, the the ships would catch a whale or kill a whale. They'd drag it on shore, and the whole village would come down and cut cut meat from it. The whole village. Like yeah. he, he was he was younger than me probably at the time. Like so this wasn't like way back. This is probably in the eighties. Like the whole village would come down and wow. cut, cut. Yeah, yeah. It was just yeah. part of life. Well, they used. I mean, you remember this is in your childhood growing up in Ireland. But you guys used whale to fuel the the lanterns, right? <laughs> in your cars, did you guys use whale blubber? All right, all right, all right. Come on, that was good. Away. That was good. It wasn't really. But it was used to to fuel. It was used as a fuel source. Okay. No, <laughs> not speaking from personal experience, but I know it's useful. Electricity, so <laughs> barely. Yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting that when they hit South Georgia, there's references of Shackleton talking to the main dudes who ran things, trying to get their experiences, because the the notes are that these guys were telling them the the 
Waddell C was very different this year. That the pack ice was uh, very far north, which would be the first thing that it ran into before hitting the continent, and that it was different than they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot a late pack ice in the season, and they had experienced a lot of it, which meant they turned around. You know, they they spent most of their time in the Weddell Sea hunting whale um, as part of their you know what they did for a living. But they there's indications that um, Ernest Shackleton knew that this was a very different period, but he, he extracted as much information and preparation in a one month period. He didn't leave until December 5th uh, of, uh, after arriving November 5th for um, Antarctica. They didn't leave, they spent 30 days. Yeah, on the ground. I think he was hesitant or he was just trying to gather intel. I, mm. It would be very hard to call off an expedition like that after years of, of uh, fundraising, and, and all the expense, and it would be very difficult to turn back. It didn't take much long after they launched, right? I mean, they launched December 5th uh, knowing that they had intel, but they had a lot of educational information and experience that he notes that like, hey, I found this subject matter expert, mm-hmm. and I'm tapping him for everything he has, mm-hmm. which is often something that we've done in special operations, but also just what we do now. I yeah. mean, leveraging, like we're about to do this content with Didi, Amber, Savan, mm-hmm. these these uh, astonishing women who are very independent and, and very self-reliant, yeah. that do things for their, not only themselves, but their families. And we're not, I, I can't tell you how to grow microgreens. No. I don't even know what the no. hell a microgreen no. is. I know, right? Um, yeah. I, I have no problem telling you what I can't do. Yeah. I, and there's a lot of shit I can't do. So it, it, it's smart to tap into the experts who, who, who live this life. And th- those guys at the Willing Station, they live there, man. They, they were some oh, hard yeah, fucking A lot of Norwegians. Experts, yeah. Um, so he, he, he decides to navigate and they, they kick off. And they kick off uh, at this point with 27 guys in, and with Shackleton included, it'd be 28 total. Knowing they were going to be there. At least two years, right? Yeah, I mean, they were going to stay one complete season, right? The the, the goal was to get there, lock in, do your exploration and and all that, at least one year, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, but they they knew it was probably going to be much more. Well, well, the the fact they took 69 dogs Mm -hmm. um, and, and... not only just the dogs, but all the things that they prepared. And, and there's cases of them h- uh, hanging a whale um, carcass from the ship's gallow. Ga- Ga- gallow? What is the map from Dude, a, something? I can't yeah. even talk Navy. All man. these Navy people. Let me not pretend like yeah, I know anything yeah, about Navy. Yeah. Um, but they hung it up in, in the. From the mast? From the mast. And the yeah, blood was dripping off of it. And the dogs were just vicious. Mm-hmm. And, and these Canadian um, bred. Um, and, and multiple breeds of dogs from huskies to just mixes of animals were super vicious. There's mm. attack, there's cases of them attacking each other, biting guys, mm. um, but they needed the right breed of dog to, to drag them across the continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you look at the, the, again, the leadership of Shackleton versus Scott, Scott had the, the enlisted men out scrubbing the deck in, in the Antarctic, right? And they'd throw water on the deck and it would immediately freeze. And then they'd have to scrape because that's how the Navy operated. And he couldn't, he couldn't be flexible enough to not do stupid stuff like that, you know, which caused massive dissension in the ranks, um, which I, I, it doesn't seem like Shackleton had that problem. He was able to make common sense decisions. He kept people busy, but he kept them busy in stuff that actually needed to be done and not just busy work. Yeah, it seems in the... 
in our experiences, it's like the special operations of expeditions. Like yeah. the, the, mm-hmm. the way that he assembled the team, even in recruiting us and assessing the right guys versus the right uh, family line, bloodline, yeah. political yeah. climate. It was thinking outside the box. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. Being, uh, being flexible and, and going, this is stupid. We're not doing it. I don't care what Navy tradition says. Um, but Scott didn't have that mindset at all. They launched December 5th with the ultimate decision of, hey, we're proceeding, right? They proceed and they head out. And the first time they encounter pack ice that's recorded is two days later. So only 48 hours, they hit pack ice. And I think that is setting a precedent for what's to come in the future. Mm-hmm. Which it, is, it was just icebergs, right? It wasn't like solid ice. It was periodic ice periodic, that they were yeah. navigating through. Yeah, p- very periodic. But what's noted between December 7th and January 18th, so over a month, their, their ship, the Endurance, becomes beset in pack ice and immobilized, and it begins drifting in the ice, which is, you know, seven, it's even noted as the lat long of 76 degrees, 34 seconds. So a- as it, it hits... One of the things to note in understanding what pack ice is, is it's islands of ice. And when you get locked into it, you're not locked like on land where you're not moving because you're anchored. You're actually floating with the actual ice. Which is worse. And, which is worse. <laughs> because I, I remember them, and I don't know definitively, definitively the, the uh, estimates, but they essentially were hitting pack ice, getting locked into it, and then floating, trying to break themselves out of it, which they did even uh, a, a month over a month later after they got stuck in it. But they were drifting so far off course, mm-hmm. it was setting them for, for, for their timeline to not be in line. Yeah. And so they were already in their contingency planning without even realizing it. Yeah, if uh, it was pulling them towards their objective, it'd be one thing, but it was pushing them away from where they wanted to go. Yeah, and then and then you know when they got locked in the uh, the ice, which means immobilized, um, and they start drifting, then immediately they start realizing, hey, this is going to be a huge problem. And in in February twenty second, which is you know over a month beyond mm-hmm. the time which they got locked, the endurance reaches its further south. They're at seventy seven degrees, and um, they have nowhere to go it's locked in. They're completely locked on all sides. They're completely locked in all sides. I, I wonder why they didn't use explosives because Scott used explosives to break his ship out. I, I, I think I read that they didn't even have explosives. Yeah, I didn't yeah. see, I checked their provision list actually this morning and yeah. didn't see anything. Yeah. Maybe they replaced the rum with the weight. Maybe, the yeah. They're like, eh, which one? <laughs> ah, let's get hammered. But but yeah, Scott got locked in and eventually they... Um, they, they, they would have stayed a third year if they didn't get out. And they used explosives to get the ship out of the ice. Yeah, I, I think one of the ideas in going through Shackleton's head at this point, you know, they had uh, very much so the motivation to and the tactical plan to get off the ship and start working the ice problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were using uh, different pulley systems. They were breaking. They were sawing. Yeah, but it was massively. How thick was it? Do you remember how thick uh, it was? They, they, there's, like, I don't think there's any great there's estimates. Parts, there's I, I remember reading it was like 30 feet thick oh, or more, it. you know, at, at some points. Yeah. Well, what's, which is, what's interesting is his decision. I mean, you think about it. They're early in the season enough to where they... 
they know that there's a chance of them breaking out and getting access to free ocean. Mm. Um, that's what they needed. Uh, at this point in which they're, they're ice locked, they have nowhere to go, but they're floating on a mass of ice yeah. with the ship and they're moving, but they're sustained in their life. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they try to do routinely was they, they got off the ship and for periods of over, I mean, this is a period of nine months. Mm. They're getting off the ship in routines, doing three hours of work and then the rest of recreation. And they're still living on the boat comfortably. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that there was, at this point, there was no sense of urgency, right? They had years of provisions, right? They, they were like, okay, we're locked in for now. Let, let's figure it out. Yeah. And they, they did food for years on, on board, right? Because they expected to be there for a couple of years. So um, We've done nine-month deployments. You think we've done a nine-month deployment on... Uh, on a ship full of dudes That's in the middle the of the ice. Do. This is the Marines They do. love it. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. So uh, that ship was a steam-powered ship that was 350 horsepower and had a... Cold, a, yeah. It was cold-driven. Imagine how much weight the Dude. coal would... Yeah, yeah. Jesus. So, yeah. I mean, they're, they're feeding coal into the kiln. I just made <laughs> that up. I, I you just made up that word, yeah. <laughs> um, the, big, it, the big stove. This big stove, the big yeah. oven. Mm -hmm. But it had a forward thrust of about 12 miles an hour, it was like 11.4 or something like that. And that wasn't enough to ram the ice. Mm. And at this point in which they're locked, th there is no chance of ramming. There are, there are cases of where it, it started to break in certain areas and they were hopeful that they could reach that that crack mm -hmm. that was opening a place to the ocean, but it started to get more and more distant as uh, in their optimism yeah. um, as the as the season continued. So we're looking at October twenty uh, seventh right now of nineteen fifteen. Nineteen fifteen. Remember, this started October twenty sixth as far as the launch uh, a year pr a year prior. Uh, this started in a launch. And here they are. The endurance is now badly damaged being stuck in the ice. And it's nine months of being stuck in the ice. They get a, they get a call by Shackleton to abandon ship. I mean, they see this coming, right? Mm -hmm. This is like living life in a disaster in slow motion. Yeah. Like a, a train wreck the in slow motion. The ice is like crushing the ship too. And they can yeah. hear it. And they can hear it every day. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, yeah. And it's actually, I think there were, it was springing leaks for a while before they actually yeah. abandoned the ship. I I, I, I think it's, it's hard for a, for a, a sailor like Shackleton to abandon the ship. That's like last resort. But I, I think they knew the ship was done. It's when they, when they bail out of the ship, there's video mm -hmm. of partially it, them bailing. And then um, even the instances of them throwing the dogs over um, via the tarps they use to like uh, slide them in mm -hmm. up to this point, they were training the dogs. They were getting ready for the expedition that they knew was going to take place. But this is looking less and less like an option. And they have to abandon ship with their personal uh, possessions and get all the guys off the ship with the dogs. Mm -hmm. At this time, I believe they had 54 surviving dogs um, and a couple packs of puppies, litters of puppies on the way. But they had originally 69. And the dogs, most of the dogs that died up until this point died because of worms. So they failed to pack out the worm powder that was a primary necessity. Mm. Uh, these dogs had worms um, prior to pr probably leaving. And then a lot of them were beset with, uh, you know, 12 inch worms mm -hmm. that killed them. And, and a painful death, by the way, is, as well. So they had a, they only had 50, uh, 
five-ish dogs and all of them and their personal possessions. It, it was crazy because there was exceptions made uh, for Frank Hurley's photographs and then even Leonard Hussey's banjo for morale um, because they were taking the things that mattered. Mm. Um, what's really crazy is Frank Hurley's photographs, which were on glass negatives, Shackleton made him destroy the majority of them. I believe he was, t- he was allowed to take in a, se- a set amount, which was a couple hundred, and they destroyed over uh, 900 slides because he knew that Hurley would go back to recover them. So they destroyed mm, them wow. to make sure that he didn't compromise mm. life. Um, one of the things that's impactful about the story that you guys could see online is the fact that it's recorded. A lot of it's recorded yeah. in video mm-hmm. and, and, um, and, and, uh, even audio uh, interviews by the BBC in the 60s. Yeah, they did of the a great night. job. And at that time, yeah. the, the video is, is like, the, to see it, like when I saw the video first, I was like, is this real or is it a reenactment? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Hurley, this is November, we're, we're October 27th now. This is a year later after the launch from Buenos Aires. And on November 8th, um, over a week later, um, Frank Hurley dies in the flooded ship to recover the rest of his precious glass plates with Shackleton he actually chose 120 to keep and then they smashed the remaining. Um, so he, he didn't want to tempt them. Um, November 21st, this is a few lakes, a few weeks later, the ship actually went underwater. Um, there's a good video that Frank Hurley made of the mass snapping mm-hmm. and uh, they had a little offset and then Shackleton watched and witnessed the boat go in. He was actually mm-hmm. speechless in his diary. Um, because it had to have been a bummer. I mean, mm. all the work and he put it into it. What do you think was going through their mind at the time? I mean, you see, they, they're on a piece of ice. Mm-hmm. They have their provisions, whatever's left, with dogs, all the men, and their one means of getting home. Just I, wonder, I wonder if the if the like the 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 sailors knew how far they were from land at that point, how bad the situation was, or did they keep it from them? You know what I mean? Did well, they keep it from them purposely? Based on Shackleton's um, own accounts mm-hmm. of his behavior leading, I would think they wouldn't know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it was smart because I think he wanted to kind of keep the morale up. I don't think he they and I haven't seen anything that that would tell the story that they knew. Yeah, but they he wanted to keep them busy. Yeah, he wanted to keep their morale up. He kept them working even when they were. I mean, they built. Eskimo style igloos that they house the dogs in um, to keep the dogs warm one and then made them train the dogs even on the ice without the boat. Yeah. Um, what they winded up saving was the, the lifeboats mm-hmm. that were 20 ish foot vessels uh, that were essentially rowboats. Yeah. Um, that they maintained, which man, can you imagine if they didn't have those? Yeah. They'd be dead. Not yet. They'd, you'd be done. They'd be the Franklins. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they know they, they lost the boat and it's got to be a, a, a kind of a crazy awakening for them. Yeah. And they realize that they have to do something about it. What's interesting is the fact they didn't do really anything about it after it's gone. So this is November 21st on December 29th. So this is a month and a week after it goes under. They have a failed attempt to march across the ice to the safety of land. Um, Shackleton establishes this camp called Patience Camp, hoping that they would drift north on the ice flow to safety. Yeah, while they were walking, they were getting pushed 
they were getting, I, I think they were getting pushed back towards the ship on the ice yeah. they were on. So they walked for like a week and they could still see the ship. Yes. Yeah. That's got to be so demoralizing. Well, this is one of the first references that I've seen in what's uh, arguably one of Shackleton's bad decisions in leadership. Um, this is where one, he orders the killing of many of the dogs, um, including their ship cat, cap, um, uh, which was grossly affected. I think Worsley was, was the uh, hold, uh, holder of that cat. And they kill a lot of the dogs, including the puppies, mm -hmm. because they can't carry them, right? Is, they, I mean, is, is that a bad decision or is it... Well, you know, is it a tough decision? Well, the biggest the biggest uh, problem was the fact that they had them leave behind the provisions. And so when they set up this patient camp, they offloaded all the provisions and moved forward with an idea of never returning to those provisions, which equal to thousands of pounds of provisions. Mm -hmm. But like you said, they they went so far, they thought in time that they could still see the ship because they didn't realize uh, at some point they did. The ice was rotating. It was rotating, yeah. it was mm -hmm. moving. And so the they couldn't go back as a group to go get the provisions. There are cases uh, of, of uh, recordings of them moving individuals back to go recover rations to bring to the masses. Yeah. But at this point, what, what people are arguing is they didn't have to leave behind the provisions. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to kill the dogs because they had plenty of provisions to feed the dogs. Yeah. But what they did was um, because he thought they could move faster mm -hmm. and if, if they were lighter. And, and the, something that's, it's a general theme. He, he, does, he does it several times where he dumps provisions. Uh, there's even cases of him dumping provisions in the water and leaving it behind where he gets rid of food. And one, like a couple of people have speculated that he did it because um, he knew in a sense that people were gonna to starve to death or they're gonna die. And he didn't want them to thinking about food and he didn't want them to get glued to the, the food. There's a whole bunch of assumptions mm -hmm. made, but it, there'd be no argument that's rational of why he would just get rid of food. Yeah, Like, I mean, he completely wasted it, like yeah. got rid of it. And so, they're in patients camp realizing they haven't gone very far and they established this camp on the ice flows in January, uh, which is 26, which is my birthday, actually January 26th of 1916. So we're talking about man, uh, fiscally or, uh, uh calendar years, a, a long time mm -hmm. from the time they left in 1914. So James cared, um, wills docker, um, uh, are launched the voyage to elephant Island. Uh, these are the names of his boats. Uh, he had three 20 plus ves uh, 20 foot uh, vessels that he launches uh, in April. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the, a couple of the references for them launching the boats was they had no other choice. They, they waited to the last minute. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a, a rec uh, recording of at one point the you, heard, you told me this recently of Tom Crean going back to recover guys that were scared because they crack had split the land between them, separating them by the ocean mm -hmm. and they were on their own and Crean jumped across and yeah. pulled them across. He jumped from, from like ice float to ice float to get across and then climbed up on this iceberg, basically get back to camp to go retrieve all those guys. That was on the Scott expedition actually, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there you go with that word reliable again, right? Yeah. I just just come through. Um, he was one of the guys that was in the ship, in one of those three boats that went to Elfin Island as well. And um, I, I, I can't remember if Shackleton handpicked all those people. I know he picked some of them, and one of them was like a, a, a complainer and a troublemaker, and he took him on the ship because he didn't want to leave him behind and have him cause dissension in the ranks. But I can't remember if he handpicked all the other guys or they volunteered. Do you remember? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, that journey from from where they were in the Weddell Sea to Elephant Island was a, a humongous journey on on open water. Yeah, and they were uh, they were navigating, they were doing hand and arm signals. Oh my god! Yeah, with three yeah. boats in the middle of the night because these guys were going twenty four hours. Yeah. a day. Yeah. Um, I mean, they departed. Let's see here. They 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 had the 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 patients camp. They decide that they're going to launch, and they had no choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was very uh, it was very hastily put together in a plan. They said, "We're going in the water. Yeah. Get your boats ready." And yeah, it was probably like, a point. Oh, crap. It was probably like a, a just a point where they're like, "Okay, we have no option." Yeah. And then as they launch, all the guys that were left back know that if those if they don't if they're not successful, we're all dead. Yeah. Oh, there's nobody coming to rescue us, right? Yeah. So if they if those Small boats sink, then we're gonna die. They 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 spent uh, nearly a week on the water navigating twenty four hours a day, minimum just the supplies they had. Yeah, um, and three separate boats. Yeah, day and night, and smoked out of their minds. Yeah, um, uh, some of the I love some of the 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 communication that took place where they thought the caps the white caps. Uh, of of some of the the waves were actually openings in the sky of it clearing up because it yeah. was just devastating. It's amazing what the human body and and more importantly the human mind can endure if it has to. Yeah. You know, you remember being in ranger school where you're like smoked yeah. and you're like hallucinating and you're just going and, and it's been like two days, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sleep for five minutes, you think it's yeah. like a week. You just slept for a week. <laughs> um, so they they. Set. I mean, they're navigating for Elephant Island. One of the things that somebody recently sent me a a, a message about was this great navigational feat of reaching Elephant Island, which was, uh, I believe, 40, 60 miles, 46 miles wide. Yeah. yeah. And the fact they hit it with a sextant, a compass, and a chronometer. In rough seas. In rough seas. Where you couldn't even see the sun in some some most of the time, right? Um, he was trying to shoot <laughs> through that little thing you have on the desk yeah. over there. Uh, like, just incredible navigation. You know, we have GPSs now and we get lost. <laughs> I know, man. It's insane. Um, so they, they, they get to Elephant Island and it's it's a pretty epic feat that they actually reach the island. And I think what's, what's really cool is when they let Black Burrow, um, he knew the morale of the guys were down. But Black Burrow had already... Um, had bad frostbite on his feet and they allowed him to be the first to touch ground because prior to this, no person had ever stood on solid ground for 497 days of the crew. Mm -hmm. And it was a remote, uninhibited island that nobody had ever been to. 
and he let Blackboro be the first one to hit the ground. Yeah, and this was not a tropical island. This was a rock in the middle Dude. of like horrible. I horrible. watched video, recent documentaries yeah. of recent expeditions there, and it's insane. Yeah. You look yeah. at it, it's not like there's a spot yeah. that's a vacation home. I know. There's nothing. You're like, you're looking at it. You're like, I'm, I'll stay on the boat, man. Dude, this sucks. <laughs> it looks brutal. Yeah. So they reach this and they, they, it's the first time they had hit ground. And no, I mean, just fathom that 497 mm-hmm. days on an ice cube. Mm. And the first time they're hitting, uh, hitting land. And it's not, it's a great feat for them because they're on land, yeah. but not really good for the total of the morale. No. Um, it's just a different place to die, really, you know? It, I know, man. I, I mean, had they not been able to hunt and kill uh, penguins and seals and stuff, they, they obviously would have died. Uh, but at least there was that there. It, they, the, the cool thing that they had there was food. Mm. Um, they had, uh, I mean, before they, they left, when they were stuck on the ice, they had the occasional seal that saved them. I mean, if they didn't have the ability to kill seals, um, uh, one was a leopard seal that Frank Wilde had shot and engaged and saved one of the guy's lives, by the way. Uh, but that fed them because it was a massive amount of meat. Mm. They had emperor penguins on this uh, island and nobody had been on this island. So the animals didn't know mm. anything about what men were. Yeah. They didn't even have a predatorial instinct to yeah. stay away from men. So they were going up to them and just clubbing them and shooting them uh, to kill them, to get yeah. meat. One, one story, I think they got 69 plus penguins Wow, to, yeah. to feed themselves. Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, they had fresh water, which was, I mean, hard to, 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 heat, to heat up with their, using their body temperature. Um, they had plenty of access to food because they mm-hmm. had penguin meat, seal meat. and But they didn't have fruits and vegetables, obviously, so scurvy yeah. was probably a huge thing. Huge thing, yeah. right? Which is yeah. the lack of vitamin C, right? Yeah, and it affects your gums and your teeth and your yeah. skin and your nails and all kinds. It's, it's a horrible way to die, actually, but um, it, it does take a long time. You can sustain life for a while, but it has a, a lasting effect on you. Yeah, and you can eat animal organs to get that, but again, it's in short demand. You're mm-hmm. eating penguin guts. Supply, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. when, one of the cool one of the cool things that uh, they were able to access were the guts of seals because they would get fish, mm. which would be a little, little bit different in yeah. taste than they were used to mm. because the crap they were eating wasn't good. They yeah. had penguin meats. I don't know if you've ever eaten penguin nope. meat, mm-hmm. but there's a reason. Never to. Yeah, I know, exactly, yeah. right? I think they're an endangered species too, so don't do that. Um, so uh, a week later, this is April 15th, April 24th, they decide... Um, Shackleton's going to sail the James Caird back to South Georgia, um, where there's a welling station to get help. He brings Worsley, his second officer, Tom Crean, the carpenter, Chippy, um, the seaman, Tim McCarthy, and John Vincent, uh, which two of them were some of the troublemakers that he had, Mm -hmm. um, that he intentionally took to keep the bad dudes away from the good dudes to keep the morale up mm-hmm. for the guys. And then they, they, they had three boats on Elephant Island. They cannibalized two of them mm. to retrofit one and put a, like a roof on it kind of thing that they could get underneath. And then they put a bunch of rocks on it, I think, for like ballast to, 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 um, to uh, stabilize it in the heavy uh, waters. And uh, again, launched. 
And again, like the guys back in the Waddle Sea know that if they fail, they all die. Now the guys on Elephant Island know that if that one ship fails, they all die. Right, so they, they, he grabs a couple of his guys and and they they go for it the again. massive testicles on I this know, dude. Oh yeah, like I mean, big cojones. Dude, yeah. the, I, it, it, there's a weird thing that takes place when you're when you're in a leadership position. I, I don't know, I don't know the science um, behind this, but I remember maybe it's the fear of getting a no go in training or yeah. But but I've experienced it in combat too, where when you're in charge, you have this energy mm-hmm. because the, the because you know people are depending on you yeah. to, to succeed yeah. or even live like in combat that we've experienced mm-hmm. and and it makes you stronger yeah it, it, like all the things that you see when you see the people being weak you you get this you, strength you gain strength from it you what absolutely do i don't know maybe it's part of the training but i remember that that uh anytime people were like really hurting it, it I, it's like i took their energy from them <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let me get some oh, of that. This is better, yeah. Um, oh, I, I, I think that that uh, there's in a leadership position like that. There's this um, mindset that I would never let my man do something that I wouldn't do. And that's why, like, he got in both of those ships, right? It, could, it would have been easy for him to stay back with the ship, or, or not the ship, but the camp there and, and launch these guys to go away to help. But that's not what leaders do, right? He, he got in there, he put himself out there. And uh, yeah, as, as a leader, that's a trait that, that has been hammered home since I was a young soldier that you never, ever, ever ask your guys to do something you wouldn't do. It's it's amazing. And, I, it, you know, I'm not comparing myself to Shackleton, but we've kind of experienced that kind of sense. Yeah. Um, it, maybe it's a sense of survival or urgency, whatever that is. He he took it head on. He, he led by example and he assembles this team of guys that not, I mean, he takes his head guy. Crean and, and Frank Wilde are his dudes. Yeah. But then yeah. he takes the troublemakers mm-hmm. because... Uh, and in fact, one of the ones, uh, the carpenter Chippy McNish, two of the people of all the all twenty seven of his crew by Shackleton were not recommended for the yeah. Polar Expedition Medal, and Chippy was one of them. Yep. which is is crazy because Chippy is a carpenter was a great carpenter and winded up saving um, his ass later mm-hmm. on with some things that he did uh, that yeah, we'll talk about. Yeah, but if Chippy had to cause problems on that boat, Shackleton would have shot him in the face and pushed him overboard, man. Yeah, he, he oh, yeah. would have, you know. <laughs> at that, that point, yeah. At that point and in that uh, moment in time that you could do that, right? I, I mean, you could, officers on the World War One could shoot deserters. They could, they could, nobody would have batted an eye if he was compromising the mission. He would. He actually pulled his pistol on him at an, at an earlier time, and uh, you know, kind of put him in this place. So, you know, th- there's always that that threat hanging over that that carpenter that this guy isn't taking any shit. Well, I love the fact that he took them away from the main effort mm-hmm. just because he knew. I mean, he knew that they were demoralized. The guys, yeah. because we've seen this in special operations, mm-hmm. how one toxic guy yeah. can destroy a team. Absolutely, destroy it. Yeah. Um, and he took, obviously he's going on a very, very difficult mission. So you would think he'd want to take the best guys, but yeah, he, he, uh, you know, self-sacrifice. He, he took that guy just so other people wouldn't have to deal with him. Now the, the treacherous two week journey was that it was treacherous. It was Mm -hmm. known as being one of the most dangerous feats, um, that anybody had ever accomplished. Yeah, uh, I watched a recent documentary where they tried to cross uh, that uh, bridge of water 
And when they did, it's known for having um, uh, the biggest waves because of the, the, I don't know if it was the mix of uh, hot and cold water coming together, mm-hmm. but it's known as, as, as being one of the roughest parts of the ocean. And when they're doing this, I think it was 13 days or something like that. I, I can give you the actual mm-hmm. timeline, but it's just their little crew on this boat navigating getting jostled around in 50 plus, uh, 50 foot plus waves. In fact, one of the largest waves ever recorded in the Southern, Southern hemisphere was in this body of water that they were crossing, which I'll give you the name of the sea. I'm actually looking for that now. Um, but it, we're not talking about like open ocean. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the roughest seas on the planet mm-hmm. and they're doing it in a 20 foot plus wooden robot. Right, uh, for, for weeks. For, for weeks. Not sleeping. That the rocks they put on the ship to, to kind of give it some weight were super uncomfortable to lay on. And uh, navigation, again, navigating in that little boat out there is just, it's, it's, it's almost a miraculous feat, you know? So they set their sails on the original place uh, in South Georgia um, where they want to link up with their last known location, which mm-hmm. was this, uh, this whaling station. And... So they get they decide to jump um, in the James Caird. They they go across, and they get um, they make landfall. And when they make landfall after this two week journey, they decide on this is May tenth, right? They decide nine days later that they're going to trek, begin their trek across the island. So yeah, they land on the wrong side. Yeah, they mm-hmm. land on the wrong side, the south side, and they needed to land. It was very treacherous, treacherous any way you look at it. But they decide to launch uh, their trek across the island, which is mainly at this point unexplored and unknown to get help at a welling station on the north coast. So McNish, McCarthy and Vincent were too ill to move on. So he kept them behind. Mm-hmm. So we got Shackleton, Worsley, the navigator and Tom Crean la- launching out. Imagine, now, imagine getting there and hitting land eventually. And been like, damn, we're on the wrong side. Now we got to cross mountains to get to the other side. What, what uh, demoralizing? I'm sure Worsley knew what side they're on, um, but that was brutal. They also pulled things out of the ship like screws to make uh, improvised. Um, what do you call them? Dang it! Oh my god, I just looked for them last night. Uh, uh, crampons. 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 Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. To make improvised crampons to, to get some grip in the snow. It was a 30 mile trek and journey over um, a mountainous terrain. and Which is hard normally. Normally. But after weeks and months of the hardship they went through. Yeah, with handmade crampons. Yeah. Like, yeah. like all the things that they would normally have, they didn't have. Yeah. And <laughs> there's uh, written accounts of them like hitting off a cliff and then sliding on their asses to the yeah. bottom of not the- Not knowing uh, what's down there. Not knowing. Yeah. They, just they, they roped together, all three of them, and they were like, ah. Screw it. Let's just do it. And Send they, it. They slide down into the abyss, into the fog, and not knowing if it went off a cliff, you know. I, um, I, I think it's amazing. They had a recent documentary where they um, they look at the location and they actually make the actual trek across the terrain that they made, mm, which I would love to do one day. Man. With, How modern, with modern equipment. With modern and, equipment, and, you know, yeah. Gore-Tex this, that, and the other, and ice axes. And, it, it, yeah. it was so treacherous. They, they were like in shock. They're like, yeah. I can't believe these guys did this mm-hmm. journey. So, uh, you know, they, they make it and 
Um, they arrive at, it's called Stromness on the north coast of South Georgia. Shackleton and his men arrive at the Welling Station and they, they decide immediately to turn around and to sail to the south coast to pick up the three men they left behind. So three days later, Shackleton um, borrows a ship, the Southern Sky, and sells for Elephant Island right after yeah. they pick up their guys. He So one thing to, to remember is he decentralized uh, command and control. He left Frank Wilde, his, one of his head dudes, you know, his first his first captain's shipmate. First seaman, officer. First officer. Mm-hmm. So he leaves him behind, so he's in charge, and he immediately starts launching for Elephant Island, but the pack ice prevents the passage and the ship returns. This is May 23rd. So he immediately goes in only days later Mm -hmm. to go recover their guys. He does two more subsequent rescue attempts, three in total aboard uh, the Instituto, Instituto, Instituto. Don't try. uh, Don't try. Mm. The Pesca number one in June and the Emma in July and also are also stopped by pack ice. Mm -hmm. So, not a lot of people know this, but he didn't like the timeline from when he actually picked them up was four months later, mm. but he had three failed attempts of trying to get in there, get out, get in, get in, um, or get out. And he, he's getting denied. Mm. And so on August 30th, 1916, um, he's aboard the, um, the Yako. It rescues the remaining men on elephant Island. And he does so through the help of the Chilean Navy. Like uh, this is this is super important because the Chilean um, Navy let them borrow a ship that was going to be capable of breaking pack ice and they utilized it. Um, And even in his book, he thanks this commander Mm -hmm. who was aboard who helped him do this, because without without this boat, without the support of these countries, they wouldn't have been able to do Mm -hmm. do that. August, August 30th. He comes uh, uh, um, aboard the Echo and they rescue all 22 remaining men on Elephant Island. Island, And there's even uh, written accounts of the guys, you know, they're out there. On, on the, the, how many were on Elephant Island? 22. Okay. So the, the 22, the five guys had left uh, mm-hmm. with Shackleton. Okay. And then they had already picked up the three guys that okay. were remaining on the south end. Okay. And then 22 men left 24 months 22 days since leaving England, yeah, they were uh, uh, gone, yeah, on ice, yeah, and uh, nobody yeah. died, and nobody died. That's incredible, yeah. Um, so uh, they August 30th, and this is something cool to note too. They leave August 30th and September 3rd. They arrive in Pointos Arenas, um, Chile. Mm-hmm. They re- rely, uh, arrive in Chile and are met uh, with open arms and and everybody starts to recover. So this is crazy, but December 20th, this isn't noted in a lot of books or a lot of references, but so this is September 3rd. This is two years after they left England, December 20th. So a few months later, Shackleton aboard the Aurora sails for New Zealand to rescue the members of his Ross sea party under extreme conditions. They had successfully, successfully laid uh, supply de- depots for the Weddell Sea Party that ironically was never to reach land. So remember, this venture was an expedition. Part of the support of this expedition was the Ross Sea Party. Which it, comes in from the south. It comes up from yep, New Zealand. From New Zealand yeah, yeah. to support by laying mm-hmm. the depot caches, mm-hmm. a supply train of helping them. Shackleton doesn't just go home and say, you know, I'm out. 
he goes back immediately um, and sails for New Zealand to rescue the members of his Ross Sea Party. Um, under extreme conditions, they had successfully laid the, it was a successful mission. And the Weddell Sea Party that ironically, they never, they never arrived. In January 10th, the Aurora, the Aurora, um, the, the, the boat that, that left to support him, um, reaches Cape Royds and collects the Ross Sea Party. Um, this is well after obviously the trip. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to remember at this time, um, and, and the Ross Sea Party is a different thing. I won't even go into it, but it, there's some tragedy that happens in the Ross Sea Party. Um, at the time, World War One is still going on, and when they get back, it's it's still in. What is it? When, what's World War One? 1914 to 1918. 19, 1918. 18, yeah, mm-hmm. four year war. Mm-hmm. So I won't go over in detail because there's a, there's a lot of explanations for specific people. There's a good podcast called the History Cache Podcast that has a line out of many of the members um, and what they did after mm-hmm. the Shackleton expedition. Every single one of them, uh, even Blackborough, who got medically discharged or couldn't get medically, uh, he didn't get medically discharged, he, he couldn't get medical approval to fight in the war, served in some other capacity. Mm. Two weeks um, or two months after the expedition was done, Two members of the expedition were killed in combat yeah. on the battlefields, one by a torpedo strike, one on the battlefield. Um, and all of them, including Ernest Shackleton, served in some capacity. Mm. I mean, you can't even like fathom the mindset of the men that were involved in this. Yeah. Nobody was a draft dodger. Nobody was a, a hiding mm-hmm. from war or from conflict even though they had just been through a t- two-year ordeal, a 22-month journey. There had, to be, there had to be lasting physical medical problems from that, you know, experience, right? Like I, I have numbness in my, in all my fingers from a neck injury I got, right? I've numbness also from anytime it gets cold, my fingers go numb, you know what I mean? Just from, from doing Mickey Mouse shit compared to what these guys did, there must've been lasting medical problems that they just shrugged off and went back to war, right? Go, go back into, into combat two months after they got back. And obviously there was probably some training, equipping, Shipping that wasn't long at all. Yeah, it, it, it man, we men aren't designed that way anymore. Mm, we no. had talked about resilience, and one of the things you have to understand about um, this time and 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 up to recent history in time, resilience was just living. Yeah, like it was. It, you yeah, know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, back then, you know, you know, I, I don't know what the 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 stats were on, on women dying in childbirth, but women still had kids, right? Because that's just, you know what I mean? And, and a certain number of kids died in the 1800s. A certain number of women died in childbirth, but people just drove on, right? Yeah, here we um, are in COVID. I know, right? <laughs> I, oh God, yeah, don't get me started. Um, so, you know, these, these men were just built hard. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the great thing is uh, the overwhelming majority of them uh, lived into their late 70s, 80s, and even 90s and live long, um, uh, amazing lives. Mm -hmm. Some of their lives were cut short, including Shackleton. Uh, Shackleton, at the age of 47, uh, which which is soon after this uh, expedition, passed away from a heart attack. Uh, He died at the age of 47 in South Georgia, actually. He's buried there. In 1922. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, writing the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, um, Dr. Till, consultant, cardiologist, 
at the Hospital of London, a uh, retired anesthesiologist said they believed he suffered from a congenital heart defect. Um, who, who was by his side? Tom Crean was by his side, right? Or was it, she or is it Frank Wilde? Pretty Frank Wilde, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Frank Wilde was by his side and he knew he was gonna die. Yeah. And um, he wound up passing away, but he, he had requested. Um, well, he no, he didn't request. His wife, ironically enough, which he never mentioned, his mm. wife or his kids, um, in any of his writings, any of his, his told experiences, um, never mentioned them. His wife, upon receiving notification of his death, because he was on on another expedition. Of course he was. <laughs> of course he was, right? Um, it sounds like some of us, right? Mm -hmm. um, she wanted him to be buried there, right? Yeah, yeah. she said that he yeah. would, he would be, I think Frank Wilde was buried be. there too. Yeah, Frank yeah. Wilde requested to be buried next oh. to Shackleton. Wow. So wow. he's buried there in South Georgia. I even looked at how much the tickets would cost. You can't get there because of COVID now. Huh, of course. Uh, of course. Um, but he, they, they're saying even a recent BBC. Is that still a British colony? South Georgia? Yeah. 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 That it and is. the Falklands both. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, he's buried there. And I, I just love the stories of some of these men who, who fought and who lived, and mm -hmm. um, especially after fighting in the war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, several of them did die in combat, you know, torpedo strikes, getting a shot and killed in combat. Um, the physicians even served and yeah. went to war. Um, and, and there's these stories, like Shackleton's story, um, was overshadowed by the war. Mm -hmm. And and even in, in now in history, there's not a lot of uh, stuff about it unless it's resurfaced by Harvard business or, uh, you know, Philcraft survival. Yeah. What, what do you think the overall lesson learned in something like expedition of this magnitude uh, of survival? What, what, what's the big overall arching lesson learned? I, I think the lesson learned is stamina comes from the mind, not the body. And you're capable of so much more than you think you are. Some people are, right? Um, some people will just buckle under the slightest bit of pressure. But if you look at what they did for how long they did it and the challenges they faced, um, yeah, stamina comes from the mind, not the body. Yeah, I, what was uh, Shackleton's motto, family motto? through endurance we conquer. Yeah, I think that's mm -hmm. a perfect way to frame out the, the entirety of, of, of kind of this expedition, which is, uh, it, it's, it, when you look at 22 months of surviving, uh, when you look at that as survival, it's actually thriving in an environment. Mm -hmm. There's so many unknowns and so many instances, like you discussed before with me, where people could have checked out. Yeah. They, they simply could have walked well, off. Well, well, when you imagine you're there for your second year, and um, winter hits and it gets dark for four months straight and the sun doesn't come up. That is so demoralizing. Remember the night ops in Iraq where we went out every single night yeah. and we were on what's called reverse cycle. We slept during the day and then we went out at night and we didn't see the sun for months. It takes we a toll on you. Yeah, it takes a toll <laughs> on you. It does. And, and we were eating well. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, um, can you imagine like the second year and you're like, oh God, you know what I mean? Here, nope, that's the last I'm going to see the sun for, for four months. That's a kick in the rocks the right there. The uncertainty of day-to-day -day yeah. life yeah. and not yeah. knowing what would happen tomorrow. Uh, there were many guys um, who were single, but there were a few guys who had families. And that 
took the biggest toll on those guys because they were thinking constantly about mm-hmm. their I wonder if they police, police each other up. Like if somebody was getting depressed or something like that, they, they, they like, you know, kick his ass or, or you know, know, if he's getting like insubordinate because he just didn't give a shit anymore, then then did they police each other up and, and be like, yeah, yeah, that shit ain't happening, man. They you said know? Shackleton was very uh, aware of the overall uh, morale of mm-hmm. the men. And, and he it, kept them busy. He kept them yeah. busy. Yeah, but it I wasn't mean, busy work, yeah. like we said. He, he he knew they would thrive in routine. He yeah. knew they would optimize their th- themselves um, and their morale and, and routine. But he also there's there's cases of him forcing upon them um, uh, like food. They would ha- he said, hey, uh, you could have pate and biscuits tonight, mm-hmm. and they would boost morale. Yeah, but those points which were like spikes in their, ra- yeah. in their, in their overall Maybe to give morale. them something to look forward to, right? He would give them something yeah. to look forward to. Yeah. And he yeah. understood that psychology out of, I mean, man, he's so ahead of his time, He was, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. He was. Such an interesting story, man. Yeah. There's so many uh, lessons learned to gain in like microcosms. You know, we try to keep that. I what, mean, what do you think generalized. the big lesson is from it? Man, I, I, I honestly think um, the biggest lesson for me is leadership is, is, is critical um, to survival. Mm -hmm. And however you look at that and however you define it, I think we're meant to be in tribes. And then when you look at tribes of, or or groups of people who survive through time, there's always been a hierarchy. There's always been hunters and gatherers. There's always been leaders and followers. I, I think that's how human hierarchy is is it's most optimal mm. and a lot of people don't get that mm. and so when you look even when you look at um without getting too political like uh socialism right when you look at different means of policing people sometimes it takes somebody who is going to stand up and when in charge be in charge and in some cases with a hard hand because when everybody's a leader and nobody um is willing to follow you have problems. Mm-hmm. And I think inversely, it's the same thing when you don't have people who are willing to step up. I think this was the perfect recipe for success and the proof is in their survivability. Um, but I think it's a good way of looking at uh, the organization and business or thriving in your own life. Mm-hmm. If you wanna be a survivalist um, and you're listening to this podcast, you need to be willing to step up and lead your family, lead your community. Um, and, and lead yourself because it, without that, you, you're not going to survive very long. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Kevin Owens. All right, man. Great podcast, man. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long that is because we took 10 pee breaks because we, we had did. the bladders of infants. <laughs> That's and we drink a lot of uh, Killcliff. Kill, kill <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm looking forward to going to the next one. What do you think the next one's going to be? You're trying to convince me of Lewis I and Clark. I, I not, well, is the I, Donner Party next? Let's do the Donner Party. I, I think we yeah. need to do Scott as well. I think we need to look at yeah. the Scott, the first and second expedition, yeah. um, because the Shackleton thing was, the, the mission failed because they were supposed to cross the Antarctic, but it it was successful because they all survived and it, there's good lessons learned. I think we need to look at failure because you can learn a lot from failure too. And I yeah. think contrasting the two is a, is a great way to look at it. You know, you look at, you look at the Scott expedition through the prism of Shackleton 
and uh, you, you really do see the stark differences in leadership. Mm. I think that's a good one. The, the Donald Party is a good, a good one, and, and the, the, the Lewis and Clark one's a great one as well, because that was a rock star team he took, yeah. and very, very successful, and, and they, they, they did, uh, um, just the, the decisions they made along the way were, were, were very, very good, and um, they lost some people, but it was a very good expedition, right, into the unknown, and the fact that we can go back and retrace that, their steps is, is super cool to be able to, to follow in their footprint, you know? Donner party it is, man. Let's do Donner party. I'm excited about pe- hearing about people eat people. <laughs> <laughs> there was the uh, City Slickers. Remember that movie? Yeah, I love that movie. The guy was like, if I got bit by a snake, would you eat my ass? He said, eat your ass. I don't even like talking to you on the phone. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right, guys. I don't know what made me think of that. Uh, cannibalism. Cannibalism, that's it. I'm just thinking about you. All right, guys. Later. <laughs>